Bam! And that's a wrap on episode 109. Uh, that was really cool. A lot of good uh, topics of discussion. So much so that Jesse actually was quiet. That's that's how good the discussion was. And the dogs, of course, quieted Jesse down a bit. Uh, Jesse, what what was the takeaway for you? Um, there's, there's a lot of things that kept catching my attention and sort of absorbing my mind, preventing me from uh, asking questions and being attentive to my job. Um, the biggest thing was though, it just kept striking me, um, over and over again that, uh, like the, the value of diverse perspectives in the design community for innovation in the industry and in gaming. Um, I was just like when each of the guests were talking about their different projects and the kinds of like decisions they were getting involved in and the way those were affecting the mechanics I, I just I couldn't help but appreciate that there's no way I would have been able to come up with those ideas um, I wouldn't have been able to of games that have those kinds of decisions and create those kinds of narratives um, and I'm really really grateful that they exist um, and that there's people out there making them um, so, I mean, that was the thing that just kept striking me over and over again. Yeah, it's like the, 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 the game that Elizabeth was working on, Thunderbird Strike. Um, yeah, for a while, that was, was really one, interesting, like, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah, that was oh. the one where I was like, what? Yeah, because the, the, like, it doesn't need to be anything fighting back. You are uh, pretty much omnipotent or all-powerful right. Thunderbird uh, right. versus, you know, things like dump trucks and whatnot. <laughs> What's a dump truck going to do to you? So you but, just destroy but, it willy-nilly, but the pushback comes in how much of you know the life can you bring back you know right. i mean and that and that's what was striking me right there's all these these different ideas and different different kinds of mechanics and different ways of realizing stories but they all still carry the same trademarks of things that we recognize as sort of essential characteristics of games mm -hmm. um and elizabeth was saying that like a lot of she takes sort of that artistic liberty and i've had this discussion with friends with respect to making like good lovecraftian mythos games where you shouldn't oh, be yeah. able to win yeah. right yeah. um and their and their argument with me is always like well the good one wouldn't be a good game it would be like a good work of art but Elizabeth's games are also good games because they still, um, even though you know the Thunderbird Strike doesn't have pushback in terms of an antagonist, it still faces players with interesting choices and decisions. So right, and in the end, that's that's really what a game should be about. Having choices, have to, yeah, yep. doesn't have to be yeah. competition in the form of you know 4X style competition, which Dylan brought uh, very nicely into the fold. Um, when we talked about colonization and, uh, you know, it's it's really interesting. Uh, one question I didn't get to ask that I'd like, I would like to talk about a little bit more about was the idea of representation in media um, and what the effect that, you know, Jason and Alan and Elizabeth have seen in their communities in terms of a positive representation of First Nations people and Indigenous people, Indigenous ideas and culture in a media that is consumed beyond their own culture. Um, because it strikes me as, as being, you know, the only person of color on this panel that it's neat when you see yourself represented. Um, but it's also unfortunate when you are represented poorly. Mm. And when Elizabeth... And it was actually, it was Jason who said, you know, you know, the number one thing is, you know, these are projects that are determined. Oh, it might have been Elizabeth. Can't remember. It was one of them. <laughs> these are projects that are determined by the community, that are led by the community. It doesn't have to be all the coding and art and design done specifically by a person of Indigenous culture, but the people who are making the final decisions and the overall decisions are. And that's why you see in their games, you know, representation that is appropriate, right? As opposed to misappropriated. So it's interesting. Um, I would like to get their comments on, on, on their idea of representation uh, and how they have seen that change or enliven or benefit their particular communities at this time. Anyway. Okay. I think it would be really awesome if we can get them on again. Really, this <laughs> is it was a, it was a really great talk. It was it was all just kind of brilliant uh, 
kind of a condensed version of, of all of the interesting design stuff that we talk about on, on shows in general, but from a, a wonderfully, wonderfully diverse perspective. Mm -hmm. And it does, Jesse's point about, you know, interesting mechanics just goes to show you that um, sampling from the same end of the pool all the time just gets you, you know, the same bacterial culture, really, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes. And if we get more diversity in game design, we will have some wonderful, wonderful games. And it, it's funny, you see this, you see this now. And um, I'm gonna tell you about the one game fair that I've never been to that I want to go to so bad because of this. It's the Tokyo Game Market, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, when the micro games came out, when Love Letter came out, when you, you see Honshu coming out now and getting you know, great reviews. Mm -hmm. um, why is that? It's because we're sampling from outside the norm. We're taking games from different cultures where it isn't orientalized games. It is games made by people who are Asian, about maybe Asia, but maybe not. But there is that slight difference in how we think. And being a Canadian-born Chinese person, I still don't think like them. I think halfway between a Canadian person who is not Chinese and a Chinese person who is not Canadian. And it's an interesting, interesting dip into that end of the pool as well. Just to, to note that diversity is important if we want to have growth and to kind of stop stagnation, right? Yeah, I mean it, it's the same. It's the same argument you see in the in the academic circles that I frequent with people arguing for diversity and in, in hiring and panels and um, and in in journal special issues and so on and so forth. It's not just about you know some kind of um, a way to counterbalance you know societal Im uh, imbalances and um, power differentials, but it's actually about making better knowledge and creating better games and just doing better as a society. Says the guy who's going to Stanford for his postdoc, right? No, no, not a criticism. This is not a criticism. Right. This is this is actually why it happens. It's like it's like the go west young person thing. It's like go be diverse. Take your take what you've learned from this school, take it to the other school. Then of course, as a as a postdoc or a fellow, they don't want you either. So they want you to take <laughs> what you learn there and go to yeah. yet another place, right? And it's yeah. a diaspora of ideas, really, that's concepts right. and, but, and those types of things. But I think that's fair too, because it is um, totally fair. I mean, well, and my project is actually about bringing diverse perspectives to things, right? My my postdoctoral research is to to go into a neuroscience lab as a philosopher and actively mm -hmm. contribute to their research. But I'm not bringing the skills that they're used to. And so, I mean, I'm all for this kind of a thing in general. Yeah. Dylan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, here I am typing on my keyboard with my my thing unmuted. I realize I've made a terrible error. Uh, it, the, the entire idea of, of having further diversity, I mean, it, it kind of our, a lot of our recent shows have been exhibiting a bit more like, okay, well, this we need these different perspectives to, to look at games. We need to think of different objectives for games. When we go back to the, the 4X example, I brought that up specifically because it's kind of a summary of a lot that occurs in games anyway. It's just kind of all of the X's that people like to stick in games all over the spectrum. When, yeah. I was in, when I was in China, everyone was saying, you've got to make a game about the three kingdoms. And when I, you know, like, it's it's all the same material. You actually have to bring it out and 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 mix it all up. When I was talking to my friends in China, it's it's like, show me a game that's not necessarily about every, you know, like the same game as all the other games that are currently on the China Chinese market because they all want to make it about one of the four classics. Just make any game from your perspective. Like, bring your perspective and put your perspective into that game. Put your experience into the game. Hooray, Elizabeth's hey. back! Yay! Well, the kids are here now, so I'm just like, hang it out, you know? She's gonna pipe in. The five-year-old okay. cat will pipe That's in. Perfect. We we accept all perspectives, and we were speaking of perspectives. We were just kind of chatting about bringing new and diverse uh, perspectives into into games as being a way of, of enriching and kind of getting rid of the old dross that uh, that really infects games. What, how about your your comments on that, then, Elizabeth? Okay, here we go. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
I think what's so awesome about the fact that we've got more and more indigenous game designers and developers now is that everyone can create space for their own voice. And it doesn't have to be like um, Nyla, who works with Pinois, there's another game company that does indigenous games. And she points out like, actually, I don't want to make games that are very clearly indigenous or for educational purposes. She really likes horror and that's what she wants to do. So that's awesome. Like she can do what her, you know, everybody gets to do what they want to do. And I think that that's what's amazing about it is like the more creative voices we have, the more people can have their own form of self-expression. And that's, what's important, like come from yourself, you know? And I think like where, where cultural expression in games can be problematic is when people are trying to do it because they want to make something that looks different so that they can sell it on, you know, they're like, oh, it'll look different, it'll be unique, so I can make money off of it myself, and they're not, you know, necessarily from that culture. It's like, leave it to the people who are from that culture to do that kind of work. And also, you have culture, you have tons of family stories and historical stories and experiences and interesting weaponry and landscapes and all sorts to inspire you directly from your communities and from people that are more directly around you. So like look to yourself for inspiration. That's, that's exactly right. And uh, I, I kind of, I, I wanted to bring in, cause we had, we had spoke la spoken last night a little bit about the Highland clearances. Uh, there's, there's a huge uh, move in, uh, Scotland and Ireland to bring back Gaelic. There's a huge move in, in uh, Wales to bring back Welsh. And I do remember, because my name is Dylan, proper Welsh name, half the family at Evans. I was on a, on a road trip down the Kulkehala next to one of our uh, Welsh friends. And he said, Dylan, you have to be able to pronounce this word if you're really Welsh. And he taught me how to say my great grandfather's hometown's name, which if I can get it right, which is and so he sat down and like, this is important. You're Welsh. You have to know this. And so it's important. So whatever culture, you have to pass on that information. And like being able to pronounce your great-grandfather's hometown is important. Totally. And then like looking at your own language and language structures too. I gave a talk in Wales. I wasn't actually there. It was like all digital, which was awesome. Thank you, technology. <laughs> and they were really interested in the work that I do because of language, because they're trying to revive language there as well. And so they're like, well, how do you go about this exactly? And how do you work with community members to help make that possible? And how do you actually express your language through games? And so the kind of work that I've been doing in historical trauma and overcoming language loss can be relevant to other communities as well. I think that's beautiful. I'm excited because I'm going to go visit with Brenda Romero and John Romero and give a keynote talk in Ireland this summer. So that, and I'm Irish too. So I'm super stoked to actually make meaningful connections back with, you know, those pathways will be super exciting. So yay, yay, Ireland. <laughs> go back. <laughs> Oh, oh, actually, now that you're here, I can ask the question I was gonna, I wanted to ask. Um, have you seen, Elizabeth, any benefit for youth who have played the games in terms of, uh, you know, a more positive representation of First Nation cultures, of Indigenous cultures in games? Has that, you know, leaked out into the communities that you support and work with in terms of how people view themselves now that they see themselves in media? I think never alone is probably like, I'm going to be moving around because I got to plug myself in. I totally forgot fine. about that whole like electricity part. But um, <laughs> yeah, like never alone seems to be the example that because it's commercially released. And so you got a lot of people who are inspired then to tell their own stories. And I think that's what's beautiful about it is it's like, it's not just about, I guess, seeing yourself, but it's about seeing someone in parallel and seeing other people do that work and then being able to take inspiration from that to also express yourself as you want to be seen. And I remember, I mean, I've talked about this a lot in the sense of like, it's hard because come on, like I played Nightwolf, you know, like I did stuff like that. We, I grew up on the 
the fighting games and you know I've talked to other people about this and the general read on it is and it's a sad read but it's the truth which is like sometimes it was just like yay we're being thought of it all right like that's what the tone was when I was growing up it was like whoa they have a native character yeah it's a stereotype but oh well at least at least we're not like completely absent and now the tone is more like okay but where's the depth you mm -hmm. know and i think too of like i guess i'm like totally rant i'm gonna rant okay That's so okay. my my uh the saddest turn in video game characters indigenous characters to me was turok so turok was cheesy right yeah right. i mean so not, stone yeah, like totally cheesy, totally like jungle indigenous. We don't really know. And based off of a comic, which was already stereotyped. Okay. So then they take that, but you know what? I like killing dinosaurs with a tech bow. That was awesome. <laughs> I loved the tech bow. I loved the idea of it generally, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was cheesy and it was horrible. Um, but in the later version of the game they tried to make him kiowa so the idea was like okay we're gonna honor your people by making you by you know making him kiowa and trying to give more of a representation but in doing so they created this weird narrative where he's like this con who has been imprisoned and there's this white kind of like military guy that's gonna teach him his ways because this white guy knew more about being Kiowa than the Kiowa because the Kiowa's been imprisoned. And oh, that was bad. Oh like, God. that's so offensive, you know? And so it's like in their effort to be like, okay, we're going to name a nation. We're going to name a people. We're going to say, like, this comes from somewhere. They ended up doing more damage, mm. you know? And so I think just to caution people that, like, sometimes it's not about – saying like, oh, we're gonna stick a tribe name on it and we're gonna choose particular regalia and that's gonna be a representation. It's like, think about this character's story. That was my um, rant. Uh, yeah, that's a good rant. I like this, it's a good rant. Uh, Dylan, um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on, on Elizabeth's rant? <laughs> no, I, I really want, I want your opinion on it. I, I actually love it. I mean, like the, the fact, it, it's true. Why, first of all, what, what's the reasoning behind, behind putting the character in there? It's not because they wanted to honor the Kiowa, clearly. Like, obviously, there's got to be a, mo a, a marketing reason there or something completely like, and totally Let's try to do better, you know? Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's I don't know. We'll indigenous wash this. We'll we'll just kind of you know try well, to. It's, it's lip service, is what it is. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. So, and I don't know if that helps access demographics or or, or what it does, but uh, I mean, perhaps it creates interest in in German readers of dime novels. I I don't know. Right. <laughs> well, it's like the it's like the good intention is there. I think it's just like the execution mm. is so poor and mm. it's so like base level because the idea is okay. Let's have a diverse cast or a diverse set of player characters or even characters, right? Mm. And then. But to what end, you know, like unless the character's story and their abilities and everything about them is very clear and has a purpose, is it like, what is that really about, you know? So that's the hope I think with everything is just like, make sure it really has a point. And they ruined Turok, like, you know, give me back the tech bow. <laughs> I'll take the tech bow. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're really the, the, the simpler, non-representative Turok was almost better than the pale attempt at trying right. to, sh you know, shoehorn Turok into something that really didn't work. Like when you said it got yeah. worse, it literally did get worse, right? Yeah, it got worse. Cause you could laugh at the other version, you mm -hmm. know, and there's like one of um, our teachings is that in laughter there is medicine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was the ability with that kind of form of that character is like, we could laugh about it. We could make fun of it. We could own the tech bow. We could just say like, yeah, this is horrible. But when they tried to 
do better in their mind and their approach, it ended up just like making even worse stereotypes. Like now you're saying native men are incarcerated and they're incarcerated to the point where they don't even know their ways and they have to learn their ways from white men. That's what that story is. Yeah. And that's not not a good narrative. No, it's not a good narrative. So like at least like I would rather see a really cheesy, horrible, generic mashup than reinforcing a potentially harmful stereotype. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, Jess, mm-hmm. can you go over what Alan said at the end uh, in terms of, you know, the transition from consumer oh. to creator? Oh, that taxonomy that I really liked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, let me see if I can remember it because um, I put it in the chat of the video that's now gone. And uh, I didn't see that. Sorry. Yeah. So he said something like, um, it, it was this nice sort of like evolution of a designer as you're sort of going through the stages of um, consuming and, and eventually creating something. So we all start off as consumers and you just have things that you're just there to like, you know, take up things and, um, and then eventually you transition into a curator, which was the first stage that involves some element of creation, where what you do is you take the, you've got this sort of cultivated set of things that you like, mechanics and themes and whatever, and you start plugging them together. And I was imagining sort of like Lego pieces and, and you're making things, but you're making them out of the pieces and the building blocks of, of the parts that you like of stuff. And then you become a designer and you start to understand better, um, how uh, the individual pieces themselves work and come about and are sort of inner workings. And so now you start designing things, but you're still replicating the stuff that you were a consumer of in the first place. Um, you might be innovating in some ways, but it still fits within the, um, in the, in the same sort of domain. And then you, and then you become uh, an agent of change uh, is, is I think was the, the, mm-hmm, it was, the, yeah. the phrase he'd used where now at that point you're, 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 separating yourself from the, the the consumer stage of your of your involvement and you're creating things that are actually driving change and pushing uh and pushing the limits of what it means to create that kind of a thing in the first place mm-hmm. I, I think that that's a wonderful uh kind of way to look at the design process and the process of being a designer but also uh, one thing that i've kind of taken away from this is that when we create something of course we're creating something necessarily that's from ourselves and in uh, in a way, like looking at a Philip K. Dick novel, as long as you know, as as cheesy or cheap as the tricks can be, a lot of the time you find yourself in a mirror looking back at yourself. And if you can actually look and critically look at your creations that you've made, no matter what medium, uh, you're looking at something that came directly from yourself, and you can kind of within that design or creation see see into your own self if you look close enough. Uh, that kind of way of, of creating, I, I, I'm wondering if that's like the source of the therapy really that, that comes from creation, but uh, being able to create something that's truly from you, that, that really speaks to your identity, and then being able to look and say you put that into the world, that's a really important thing. And we really need, and that goes, goes right back to our point on diversity in, in creation. We have to have that diversity because everyone's diverse. We shouldn't yeah. be trying to replicate. Right. It's all people, right? I think about like, um, that's what the Skins Workshop is really leading towards. Like even mm-hmm. if the youth don't end up going into games, that's okay. They have media literacy and, you know, some of them might actually go on to work in film instead or music or another area or even just, you know, working in human resources, whatever it may be. Nonetheless, they're able to look critically at what it is they're consuming and break it down and, view it in another way so ultimately that's what it's really building towards and i know that alan does workshops along those lines as well we've done like a few game jams together you know we do work like that together where maybe it's not youth oriented maybe it's for all ages and it's really about giving people space to understand that they're empowered right to do this and survivance is a game like as a social impact game that's what you're doing you're understanding, you know, one of the first step, like one of the parts of the quest is that you make space for yourself to create. And that might mean like getting your stuff together and cleaning off a desk (laughs) or a kitchen table or whatever it is you actually have to give yourself or like cleaning up your computer or whatever it is. 
you have to physically give yourself the space to be able to create that's a quest and then from there you're able to engage with the experiences that you've had in order to create in any form speaks to you at that time it's very fluid right mm -hmm. this is when i suppress my urge to bring up huizinga yeah <laughs> I need, I need to start. Sacred, <laughs> sacred circle, sacred circle, sacred circle. Uh, hey, Elizabeth, uh, you mentioned that uh, one of the teachings of your people is that in humor, you'd find medicine. Yeah. And actually, one of our listeners and viewers, Jonathan Lavallee, was asking the question that never got asked in the main show. So I'm going to ask you now. Uh, he asked, well, a lot of these topics that we're talking about seem to be very... Um, serious oh. and is there any indigenous game uh, that is on the more humorous side uh, you know he, he um, was talking about uh, Thomas King's writings and things like that where there's a lot of humor involved in the culture and is that expressed in the games totally I mean invaders is that like you cannot play that and take it seriously it's totally a riff on face invaders and it's meant to create laughter and it's laughter in the face of like dealing with the term invasion or understanding right. what an invader is right mm -hmm. and so that one's definitely positioned that way um you know i think it gets evoked during uh experiences that alan's had running campaigns uh for edgar gore you know where just players react in certain ways that it creates that um Thunderbird Strike to some sense, okay, so like, I don't know our audience here, but I would say that it will be humorous to some people, perhaps not to others, <laughs> you know? I mean, like, that's oh, no, I get it. Yeah, yeah. kind of up to interpretation. Like, to me, it's really hilarious, but I have, I have, I have, like, pitched the game, and I have had a response of, that's very dark. <laughs> I'm like, what? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> like, I well, don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's dark. It doesn't seem yeah. dark to me, right? And so, you know, I think there's some cultural uh, interpretation there as well, or some like cultural perspectives that go into it. And then, um, then, and there's another game I worked on as a narrative designer and writer by Loretta Todd called Coyote Quest, and it goes hand in hand with her show on the Aboriginal People's Television Network. Uh, Coyote's crazy science show. It's for youth, obviously, but the game is all humor. It's Coyote, he's humor, he's a trickster, and he does things like flip mountains upside down, and you have to go through a point-and-click adventure to solve all of these things that he's messing up with wave space and creating space-time portals and all this trickery that he's doing. Uh, and there are little mini-games that teach you uh, kind of a combining Western science and indigenous perspectives of science together in this game that has like four sort of segments or episodes in it. And so, you know, I mean, that's like humor meant for youth, right? So there's a lot of different examples of where it does come out. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really interesting. There's a lot of, of really cool stuff, I, I think, in terms of how we can inform design decisions based on culture, because I mean, they're intrinsically linked, right? Culture and games, mm -hmm. when you think about it, uh, you know, our, our culture is derived in, in a very big part from, you know, language and games and games that use language and language that uses games and things like that. So, uh, you know, by being able to create not only games, but games that you know, add to representation, add to conversation about things like, you know, the tar sands and things like that, right? Or the pipelines. Um, and that's one of the things that I've, I've also noticed about a lot of your designs, Elizabeth, is that they usually come with like a whole guidebook on how to, how to debrief after playing the game. Um, <laughs> not all of them, but some of I them. Had to, I had to start writing them because people would ask. Okay. So like with Thunderbird Strike, I thought, oh my gosh, I should anticipate this ahead of time. And so I have these modules now for like each okay. level. So as you mm -hmm. go along each level and then like resources to follow up to actually learn. Cause I, and I think I do that because like a lot of the work that I do for myself is super experimental. 
and the meaning is in the meaning you make the same way that like Brenda says the mechanic is the message one of the phrases that I use is the meaning is in the meaning you make and so there are different approaches I think as an artist about what your purpose is and I think it's easy for one to say as a game designer that they have a message that they are intending to pass on and so I think some people interpret that that's what I'm doing but that I'm actually I don't actually mean for that necessarily it's that you make the meaning out of it and you make the message actually it's really not up to me I'm just making what I feel like Alan Alan wants to know when Thunderbird Strike will be out yeah that's gonna be well it's almost I'm gonna say fall because I'll totally mess myself up if I'm like actually it's coming out mid-June but and then it'll get delayed <laughs> you know, like something so, yeah. will flow. under promise over deliver all the time so I'm gonna say fall <laughs> all right then fall it is fall it is you could say it. and not give a month <laughs> Jesse any last yeah. comments um, comments and no, but I, I just, I, it occurred to me that I have a, a brief opportunity to maybe pick Elizabeth's brain a little bit based sure, on something sure. she just said. So uh, just a small question. Um, so I, I sometimes uh, do work on uh, game-based learning and designing games to teach. And one of the, the big things that I've noticed is there's, there's often a disconnect between like the game and the learning insofar as it's necessary to have an explicit reflection component just to make sure that you, you sort of get the, the juice out of the, out of the, the whole thing that you've constructed. Um, and your, just your comment about Thunderbird Strike and incorporating some of that into the, the game's flow um, something that it might be nice to get you to reflect a bit on. And in particular, because it, it sounds like what you've done is you're like interleaving in the reflection into the game, but it's still like pushing you out of the game and making you leave that experience to go and, and do the learning thing. So it's not yet quite achieved that sort of magical ideal of integrated game-based learning. Yeah, and then like, I guess my question would be, is that the ideal? Right? Like, for me, I'm all about space, time travel, and reality slippage. And so, and okay, so for context, like, Sorry, my you have mom, a time machine? <laughs> yeah, like, my mom is Grace Dillon, and she coined the Her house is really, really small on the outside. Uh. <laughs> Tiny. So, um, my mom's Grace Dillon, and she coined the term indigenous futurisms. So, the way I was raised was, like, with this idea that you know, you have a book, but the book is going to be, a, you know, there's other experiences that happen all the time, like in how you interact and the discussions you have, because she is a science fiction scholar. So that's like kind of where I grew up. And so for me, I think, and especially with indigenous communities, they, I think by and large, they don't want like a contained experience, especially when we're talking about plant medicines, land knowledge, waters, etc. Like honor water, you learn the water songs with the hope that you will actually go walk along water and you will sing those songs because in our teachings, water songs can heal the waters with the frequencies vibrationally when thinking about molecules and the structures of molecules and how sound influences that. And so those teachings are embedded in the game, and the game is actually meant to send people out into the world to do that. Mm. Um, so I don't know that it will ever be completely encapsulated. I think the one game I'm working on where it would be would be Coyote Quest, because it's so like all of the lessons are right there embedded in the game. but. The advantages of that is it's a point-and-click adventure, so I can have more text, mm -hmm. and I can have a lot of mini games, and right. then I can have the characters explaining how all of this connects as you mm -hmm. go through the game. And so I feel like that's the one game I could be like, I'm just going to hand that over to a class, and they'll have the learning, and it'll be contained within that. But then, even then they would be missing out on a lot if they didn't go to the website that was developed by Loretta Todd with 
the media company and Philip Desjois and other creatives where there's do-it-yourself activities so the kids can like do science experiments in their house, you know, like right. you'd be missing so much if you didn't do that part too. So um, I guess it's more like maybe games for learning tend to lean more towards transmedia and maybe that's part of that work is just finding ways to fluidly weave that yeah. together. Cool. Oh, the one game I would say is totally contained that I've done is Macon. Uh, it's a very simple game that uses moccasin game as the inspiration for the core mechanic. And that you can pick up as a mobile game and you can play it and you can pick up language just by playing internally. And it seems to be so far, I haven't tested it a lot, right? Like, I mean, somewhat, um, but it's only been out for a few months. And I would say of all the games that I've made, that one is definitely self-contained. But the hope is that it will inspire people to right. learn more of the language. So, well, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, so having having spent uh, a, a good part of the last couple of hours looking at some of your other work, I also would say survivalance. Survivance is a, is another example of one that's entirely self-contained, but that also might be because it seems to it also exists everywhere yeah. all the time, yeah. right? It has yeah. no boundaries. It's not contained, and so in that way, the experience of playing and the experience of learning are continuous and ever present, exactly. and it's non-linear. So I've had players that one time they play, they decide they're an orphan, and which is like the essentially mm -hmm. kind of, in a linear sense, the bottom of the quest chain. Mm -hmm. And then they'll play another time and they'll decide they're more like at the warrior, but maybe they hit a low point in something that they're experiencing in their life later and they jump back to the orphan quest later on. So it's not like a, I'm going to enter the game and I'm going to progress through these points and that's going to tell me I'm on a path of healing and I'm getting to this life point. And in fact, um, if you look at the Anishinaabe life journey, it is not by any means a straight line. It divots. And our teachings are you, you are always on your correct path no matter what direction it is you're going. And you can go, you know, you can repath backwards. And so I think this is a way in which, like, a lot of the story structure of my games are influenced by these teachings because I cannot really function very well in branching narratives, which is the norm, especially for uh, text-based games and for role-playing games and even, like, Bioware's games, you know. Right. And I can force myself very early on, I would force myself to fit into that structure when I was working on mods and stuff, all this branching narrative work, but ultimately that's very binary. It's like a, this path or that path, a yes or no, yes, no, maybe, neutral, chaotic, good, evil. You know, instead, and I think that this will evolve more and more, are these more fluid structures where in fact you are repathing and that you are actually still having a completely new experience as you're repathing. Very, very cool. Um, I think, you know, the, the idea of games for education. Um, now, Jesse, you, you're going to have to clarify for me. Uh, what is your stance on using a game as an educational tool? You've told me before, and um, I can't remember if it's the same. As, okay. as, like, okay, he so. It while he gives the answer, I'm going to be like. <laughs> gamific so gamification versus oh. game-based learning. Right. Um, I mean, I, 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 see, I see games as, as a, a tool in an educator's toolbox, mm -hmm. like any other kind of active learning activity or even decisions to lecture and talk, right? It's all just different ways of communicating information, providing students and learners with opportunities to engage skills and engage in experiences that can transform them and also transform you as an educator. Mm -hmm. And that um, effectively using them is the hard thing. Uh, and is the important thing to think about when you're when you're deploying them. I think they have a lot of advantages because in designing a game, you get to design an experience yeah. in a way that you don't necessarily get to do um, with uh, with other kinds of educational interventions. Um, but that also means to do it well means to do a lot of work. 
And so it's very hard and difficult to have effective game-based learning tools. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I just did a breakout with a class of 40 yesterday. So we had eight breakout boxes teaching pharmacology to a bunch of students. Um, and the reason why they work is because we don't need to do that debrief after because the locks verify the learning, right? Hmm. In some way. Yeah. I mean, some of them might have brute forced some of them, but I don't, uh, hopefully not all of them. Um, whereas even for things like media, like movies or book clubs and things like that, people always, you know, tend to have that little debrief after. Like if you went to see a movie with your wife, you might say, oh, you know, what'd you think of this when that happened in, um, you know, Logan, Old Man Logan or whatever, or Ghost in the Shell. You might talk about that with your wife after you go home, after you've seen it. Uh, and in the classroom setting, you know, I, th I think we need to have that debriefing not only to verify, but to unpack the learning mm -hmm. and just to make sure that people got out of the experience what we hope they got out as instructors. I mean, is, is, that, is that something that you feel is, is missing, Jess? Oh no! Um, it it was just a it was just a, a curiosity. I mean, I think that the the debrief and the reflection is super important, even in cases where the learning is contained. I actually think it would probably be valuable to include with your breakout boxes, um, yeah, because okay. it helps. Because it helps the it helps the learners both connect. Uh, directly connect with their learning. It gives the, the educators insight into what they think they're learning or what mm -hmm. they see themselves as learning. Um, and then for me, because of the way that I, I like uh, to organize reflections, it also gives them opportunities to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. um, because everybody's going to have experienced that learning game or that activity or that movie differently. And when you don't have that like discussion and that reflection as a group, you miss out on opportunities to see things slightly differently from the way other people talk about how they've experienced it or what they've learned. Okay, so Alan, just, Alan, Alan, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Alan just dropped a bomb. Alan just dropped oh. a bomb in the chat that I think will help us. Uh, he said, yes, exclamation mark. Uh, <laughs> and then he said some more stuff. He said, games and education, are about starting and ending conversations. Games as punctuation or parable. Ah, right, and I think that to me is, it makes a lot of sense. Like, so for me, the breakout box yesterday was literally ending the conversation. Uh, the, the professor had taught them uh, pharmacology, had done the, um, you know, looked over the resource, and really what this breakout box was showing was, can you interpret a case scenario and can you use the tools we provide you with in terms of a medication guidebook and all that kind of stuff to answer the questions and solve the problems? So it was a punctuation as opposed to a parable, right? Um, and so maybe it doesn't need that unpacking, but if we had done it before we did any of the teaching, then we would really need to unpack it afterwards. Um, and so that to me clarifies quite a bit. I mean, it may not be totally binary like that, but that's a really good way of looking at it. Jesse, thoughts on Alan's Alan's logic bomb? Oh, I was actually just typing in the chat that I I like really love that metaphor, and I'd not thought about it that way. And that Alan continues again on his trend today of changing my perspective with like a really cool taxonomy or conceptual way of putting things. Yeah, man. Um, I, I especially like the idea of thinking of games as punctuation because uh, to me that expend, extends beyond starting and ending conversations um, because we have these other awesome pieces of punctuation that don't The just, semicolon. The semicolon, yes. Or my favorite, the M dash, which has no formal rules surrounding it whatsoever. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah, it, it totally right. doesn't. Well, it's like what I'm trying to do as a designer right now is I've noticed I have not necessarily intended for particular games that I've worked on to be used in classrooms with a whole variety of different people. Like certain games were really by the community for the community, but they're public. So, you know, sometimes college classes pick them up and they're working on them. And so I thought, oh my gosh, you know, they're the ones creating the context for those conversations and that's great but I thought boy if there's a way in which I can facilitate that myself that's probably really good for me to anticipate and mm -hmm. that's why with Thunderbird Strike I'm kind of setting up these um, it's gonna be like a blog 
And then my hope is that if there are college classes or high school classes or workshops where they're walking through this content that I could actually ask the professors or faculty or teachers to have their students post on the website so that we can create like a wider sharing of what's coming out of these experiences in these conversations so the conversation can break outside of the classroom and go much wider and we can have like cross community conversations about this work and it's not something that you know I've ever done with any of the other games but because it's already happening anyway I thought wow you know it's probably important to do this especially in the context of understanding exactly what Thunderbird Strike is about because it's going to be way too easy for people to equate it with Standing Rock, and that is very relevant, and it is entirely parallel. However, the particular pipelines that I'm talking about with Thunderbird Strike are different. And so I think, you know, that's part of the pieces of this, is making sure that people don't just throw it in Standing Rock curriculum and don't actually look close enough to realize that I'm really what the hope of for this particular game would be creating awareness of, around the pipe that's underneath the Mackinac Bridge and the Great Lakes and the yes. that runs all the way to the tar sands. You know? which, which is, which is uh, I can't remember how much older the, it is than it should be. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, a it's like legitimate threat to the Great Lakes. Yeah, it's a situation where like, whereas with Standing Rock, that was a situation where a pipeline is going to be put in. This is a situation where there's a pipeline that is already there and it needs to be decommissioned. And so there are different issues here in under, you know, creating a context by which people can really look at articles and ex expand their knowledge beyond the game is gonna be uh, mm. very important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really oh, think I... we need Scott Nicholson and all of our previous guests from today on a gigantic learning and games mega panel. <laughs> that would be absolutely be glorious. That'd be a good time. Good times had by all. Um, I did have another question. Dang. I'll have to, I'll have to think about it because then... Uh, we went off on another tangent as is usual and I forgot it. I should like make a habit of writing it down. Anyway, um, it is it is 4.20. Not that that's the time that I wanted it to be. Uh, 10.20 in the case of Yeah, so it's uh, probably time to wrap up. What do you think, guys? <laughs> it's kind of dark here. Yeah, it's yeah. getting dark in, in Dylan land. Elizabeth, are you okay with us wrapping up? Oh, totally. Yeah, I don't really know why I jumped on. I was just like, I ah, guess. It's fun. We're just, we're just <laughs> here for We're just yeah. enjoying ourselves now. Judge, not asking you to really be here, but also sending you the link a couple times. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, it's all good. It's all good. Um, so we're going to sign off right now. Thanks, anybody who's watching, all, all the few of you who are right now. Uh, for those of you who um, liked this part of it and didn't see the first part of it, go back in the YouTube channel. It'll be there. Uh, all the main shows, and I think even the after shows are ripped for audio for a podcast later. We don't edit anything, so they're just raw audio um, because we that's that's kind of the way we roll around this part of the world. Um, in in we've got designs to make. We've got we've got designs to make, right? Um, so let's leave on a very good note uh, that we had a wonderful time today with Elizabeth. And with Alan and Jason, who were here earlier, we had a great time learning from them about the perspective of indigenous game designers. And it really just solidified for us that we have, you know, a duty almost as people who value games and design as more than just entertainment, but as a culture to involve people of wide and varied cultures and differences because it only makes the pool of games that we you know, swim around in uh, that much stronger. Any last words, Jess? No, that's good. You took the words right out of my mouth. Really? Like, literally, like right out of your mouth? Awesome. Uh, Dylan, any last words? I used up all my words in the last one, so. All right. Okay, and Elizabeth, anything you'd like to say to the audience before we go? There we go. <laughs> Just thank you. And thank you for putting this together. Because it's like, for me, you know, both Jason Edward Lewis and Alan Turner are mentors, you know, mm -hmm. in my life. And mm -hmm. 
been really foundational to helping provide space for me and my work and my growth. And so to have an opportunity to hang out with them and be asked amazing questions and hear their amazing answers was really phenomenal. So thank you for putting this together. Very cool. Oh, I do remember my question. And I'm going <laughs> to ask it. I'm going to ask it because I have a mic and I'm going to use it. Uh, no, um, so in this year, uh, the 150th anniversary of Canada and the year of truth and reconciliation, um, one of the college mandates we have educationally is to see how we can involve or create curricula that is about truth and reconciliation and about moving past that, moving past the whole idea of residential schooling uh, and the horrors and the fallout of that and move into the actual reconciliation phase. Um, and I'm just wondering, Elizabeth, how games can be a part of that, not only for students who are uh, of Indigenous cultures, but for the other students who are not, but will be maybe involved in courses that are set up to teach about Indigenous cultures. Where do games fall in um, in that sort of curricula design? Because that's, that is where I can actually make a difference. Yeah, I think the key thing will be to um, reinforce always remembering the history. And I think part of the what is problematic uh, for Indigenous communities about how truth and reconciliation is being rolled out is that it's, it's meant to create awareness very briefly in order to then move onward. Mm -hmm. And I hope for there to be efforts and I think it comes with just being aware and talking to indigenous people of understanding like more of like internal perspectives on what what's happening with this focus and making sure that it's actually the emphasis is on maintaining those connections and on remembering the past always and providing space for indigenous voices as well as genuine opportunities to create. And so in the games that you uh, show and share, I mean, there's certainly my work. Uh, Renee Neho has a forthcoming game called Blood Quantum, which very directly addresses issues of blood quantum and how that system is eradicating essentially uh, rights for indigenous people and connections. And so there's her work, um, you know, there's Julia Karen Dattar who worked on Mushroom 11, which is about uh, the, there's a post-apocalyptic game. So there's a lot of opportunities. I am still talking, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, the Canadian government shut me down. <laughs> I think that we may have had a uh, technical difficulty. Okay, technical difficulties on his end. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so just, I mean, just to conclude, I think it's in remembering to make connections and then maintaining those connections for life. That's perfect. And I think that uh, Sen is frozen out, so he can probably <laughs> hear us. Okay, that's why. I'm going to signal to him that it's time to, to shut down. Also, thanks, <laughs> thanks a lot, Elizabeth. And uh, we will we will go off air for now. Have a great yeah. rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Bye, Matt. Bye.